So this is my first introductory slide. Can you all hear me now? Um, you hear a lot in the media about other sorts of diseases than brain diseases, like heart disease and cancer. But to my way of thinking, brain diseases have a colossal impact on people's lives, the lives of people who suffer from these diseases, but also their families and friends. And it happens throughout the lifespan of human beings. So here we start with the babies and toddlers and the types of diseases that they have to contend with. Um, malformations of the brain may give rise to problems which um, become manifest early on in life. And then um, damage actually during birth or in utero. There are inherited metabolic diseases that can impinge on brain function. There's trauma, accidental trauma, which can occur at any age, but unfortunately in a few young infants and toddlers, actually um, shaken baby syndrome, which is, which is uh, intentional or semi-intentional trauma. Infections, colossally important, cerebral malaria, which kills millions of babies and toddlers, and autism. So it's a very wide range and it starts very early. Then if we go to the young adults, trauma is still very important. Tumours can arise at almost any age. Um, multiple sclerosis starts to be a problem at this sort of age. Young adults are the people most at risk for developing the first symptoms of multiple sclerosis. Strokes, not very common at this age, but they can occur, usually due to malformations of blood vessels at this age, rather than silting up, which occurs later on. Epilepsy. Epilepsy can occur from very early in life, but often presents at this early adult stage. Um, the effects of recreational drugs is something that has become increasingly important as as this um, century and the one before has gone on. Uh, schizophrenia and other psychiatric disorders present often at this age. And infections still there as something that can cause problems, meningitis as well as encephalitis. In middle age, we've got many of the same conditions. Road traffic accidents as a cause of trauma, um, as in young adults. Strokes become more common than they were in young adults. Multiple sclerosis can still present at this age or you get relapses and remissions um, throughout this period of life. Motor neurone disease. Um, there are rare cases of motor neurone disease that start earlier, but um, this is a, a more common time for it to start appearing. Uh, recreational drug and alcohol misuse are, are still there, as are psychiatric disorders. And so then we come to old age, and this is when the neurodegenerative diseases really kick in, in a big way, um, with Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease. Trauma is still there, usually at this age more likely due to falls than road traffic accidents, but of course road traffic accidents can happen as well. Strokes a common cause of death in, in old people, 
and intoxication still there, particularly alcohol. So my second introductory slide is about um, the difficulties of investigating the brain. The brain is, is held within a solid stone, a bony skull which deters invasion by needles or catheters. You can't go poking catheters into the brain in the way that you can into the stomach, for example, to sample the, the lining of the stomach. That is a very um, um, innocuous procedure now. Um, but you can't do these things with the brain. It's far too precious an organ to be invaded in this way, unless, of course, there's some condition that actually requires sampling, like a tumour or sometimes intractable epilepsy, which will require invasive um, processes. And then blood tests are, are hard to use to reflect what's going on in the brain. Although we've been investigating Alzheimer's disease for over a century, we still don't have a simple blood test that's reflecting what's going on in the brain um, by doing a simple blood test. Everybody's looking for one, but we haven't found one. And of course, MRI scans, and before them CT scans, provided a great help in enlightening us about brain structure over the last 25 years or so in living subjects. But the thing about um, brain scans is that it can only get you so far. It can get you to this sort of level of, of structure that you can see naked eye, but it can't get you down to the cellular and molecular levels, which is really where we need to be if we want to understand what's happening in brain diseases. So let's go back to Thomas Willis, who's rather a hero of mine. He's an Oxford, he was an Oxford physician of the 17th century, uh, lived and worked during the Civil War. And the key thing about his contribution, as far as I'm concerned, is that he recognized that um, things that were going wrong in the brain accounted for some of the symptoms of the patients that he looked after during life. He lived a lot of his childhood in North Hinksey, and he became a student at Christchurch. His studies were interrupted by the Civil War. In fact, he didn't really have a very good medical training, which was probably an advantage to him, because it meant that he didn't become imbued with all the so-called uh, wisdom from people from ancient days, which is what medical students were taught about. He was able to actually make his own observations, uh, unbiased by what his medical teachers might have taught him. Um, he was on the royalist side during the Civil War. Um, he had to be rather careful, keep his head down during the Cromwell era. Uh, but then after that, he was able to flourish and he became appointed as Professor of Natural History at Oxford. <coughs> and he lived with his wife in Beam Hall, which is just around the corner from here. The, the, the house still exists. And um, you, can, you can walk past it. For the last nine years of his life, he moved to London, where he and his, his colleagues and friends were um, some of the early members of the Royal, the Royal Society. So what he did was to relate the, the symptoms, neurological symptoms that he saw in his patients to damage in the brain that he found when he examined the brains after patients had died. Before Willis, 
a lot of the importance of the brain was thought to reside in the have I still got oh, yes a pointer in the ventricles of the brain in the fluids that you can find at the centre of the brain. Now I don't know if I can make this work. Um, well, you can see them; those spaces at the centre of the brain there. And I think this this may have been because not very long before um, William Harvey had shown that the the heart was able to pump blood around the, the body. And the key thing about his um, demonstration was that it was important for what was going through the heart rather than taking a lot of interest in how the pump itself worked. But Willis realised that it wasn't so much the ventricles in the centre and the fluid that they contain, but the actual substance of the brain that was important. And one of his colleagues was Christopher Wren, who drew some of the illustrations in Willis's books. This is um, an, a, a, an example of one of Christopher Wren's drawings in which he shows the base of the brain and you can see the um, vessels that are now named after Thomas Willis, the Circle of Willis, which is this group of vessels here at the base of the brain, which provides the very abundant blood supply that the brain needs because it's a very metabolically active organ. It's needing oxygen um, delivery all the time. So if we put up a timeline to show where Thomas Willis comes in the story, he's at the left-hand end, and then there's quite a sort of fallow period during which not very much was found out about the pathology of brain diseases. There were good descriptions of clinical disease, um, but they didn't go into the pathology that was underlying the clinical disease um, until we really get to the um, near the end. Well, there's, there's James Parkinson who comes early in the 19th century with his very um, good essay on the shaking palsy describing Parkinson's disease for the first time. Um, and on the right you see there a drawing that was made by Charcot um, about that period or a little bit later of a Moroccan patient with Parkinson's disease which illustrates rather well the, the lack of um, expression in the face and the rather stooping posture of somebody with Parkinson's disease. But it wasn't for many years um, before we understood what the pathology of Parkinson's disease was. There was one pathologist in, in Britain um, in the 19th century who actually described rather well the damage that occurs in the brain in multiple sclerosis. This is a drawing of his which shows these areas of brown discoloration, rather discrete um, areas of damage to the brain in somebody with multiple sclerosis, uh, very well illustrated. But he didn't link it with the clinical side of things. And it took um, Charcot, Jean-Martin Charcot, who was a physician at the Salpetrier Hospital in Paris, to put together the clinical and the pathology side of it and give the condition a name in French, sclerose en plaque. And this, um, this actually shows Charcot demonstrating a patient to colleagues and students um, in the time-honoured way um, that uh, 
has served to transmit experience from one generation to the next. It still goes on in clinical medicine. He's, this isn't a patient with, uh, on the right, it's not a patient with multiple sclerosis. I think it's a, a patient with what he called hysteria. But you can see how um, avid the audience is to learn from a, a very great physician. So it was really towards the end of the 19th century that the development of microscopy and, and stains to enable tissue to be studied under the microscope um, that paved the way for understanding of brain diseases to develop faster. And one of the important forerunners of the neuropathologists who studied microscopy of brain diseases was Ramon y Cajal, who was a Spaniard, who's pioneered studies of the microscopic structure of the brain. The brain has an incredibly complicated um, microscopic structure, which he managed to um, describe uh, amazingly well. And um, it was on that basis that understanding of disease when the microscopic structure is changed that um, subsequent people were able to build on. That's one of his drawings of a, of a nerve cell on the right there. So then along comes Alois Alzheimer. It was, it was mainly, as with Thomas Willis, it was mainly physicians who looked after patients with diseases that have their pathology mainly at the microscopic level who were the first to describe the pathology. So Alzheimer was a physician who looked after patients and described the first case in 1907 of somebody with the pathology of his disease. And on the right, you can see some of the beautiful drawings that he made um, of the typical damage to nerve cells that occurs in Alzheimer's disease. Um, he was using special stains, silver stains, that were developed and enabled these structures to be defined for the first time. There were others about the same time who described the microscopic pathology of some other dis important diseases. So here on the left, we can see um, a drawing of multiple sclerosis pathology at the microscopic level from work of Dawson, who was um, a Scottish pathologist. And so he, he studied the pathology under the microscope of lesions like the, the ones that um, Carswell had described. And what he showed was that in multiple sclerosis, what happens is that the... Um, I can't get this Richard thing to work. Um, the fatty sheaths, which look like sort of donuts, the donuts around the jam um, at the top of that picture, which are normal, and surround the axons, which here are seen in, tra in transverse section. These are the very fine, drawn-out nerve processes that link one part of the brain with another, or with the spinal cord. You can see in the bottom part of this picture that most of those have disappeared. You can still see some of the black centers, the jam, but a lot of the donuts have gone, and that's because the myelin has been destroyed, and the remnants of myelin get taken up by scavenging cells, like these ones here, around a blood vessel, 
um, which digest the myelin, which is a fatty, complex fatty substance, and turn it into neutral fat, which appears um, as a sort of foamy appearance in the, in the cytoplasm of these scavenging cells. And then on the right, you can see the pathology of Parkinson's disease um, displayed. On the top right, you can see a section of the midbrain, that's the top of the brain stem, in a normal person, where you can quite readily see that there's a line of um, tissue that looks black because it contains melanin. That's the, the um, pigment that you also find in the skin. And that's the normal state. And on the left-hand side, uh, it's shown at two different levels. On the left-hand side, you can see the same area in somebody with Parkinson's disease, where you can't see the black uh, tissue anymore because those pigmented cells that form the black tissue have been destroyed. And on the, under the microscope, um, surviving, any surviving um, cells uh, have these odd structures in their cytoplasm called lavy bodies after the first uh, person who described them. Um, and that is characteristic of Parkinson's disease. We still don't know exactly how those bodies come to be formed. So the next stage from understanding a simple clinical and pathological description of a disease was to try to understand how the pathology explains the symptoms. Now that can be at the macroscopic level, as for example in a stroke, where it can be clearly seen with imaging and so on that somebody's, the part of the brain that controls the limbs on the other side when you want to move them voluntarily has been destroyed by a, an interruption in blood supply to those nerve cells. But a lot, of, a lot of brain diseases are really um, defined at the microscopic level, like Alzheimer's disease, um, but we sometimes uh, are not clear exactly which component of the pathology is the really important one for how demented people become. And that's illustrated here. Um, there are two main types of pathology in Alzheimer's disease. The tangles, that Alzheimer described in his drawings, which you can see in a microscopic section there um, as they appear within nerve cells, the tangles. Uh, but there are also some structures called plaques, which had been described actually before Alzheimer described tangles, uh, but they were thought to be part of aging. They weren't thought to be part of his disease. Um, and they are actually formed between nerve cells. And, um, there's been a lot of controversy, there's still controversy over how these two types of pathology are related to each other and which is important for making people demented. Um, but several studies have now made it clear, um, including this one that's illustrated on the right, that it's the tangle density in a particular bit of the brain that determines how poorly that part functions. And this is in the neocortex, which you need to, to do your thinking and it's the tangles in this bottom panel that are clearly related to the cognitive score up the side there. Whereas if you just look at all the plaques at the top, there's no relationship between how many plaques you've got and how demented you were, you were during life. The other thing that became possible in the 20th century was to analyse not just structure of the brain, the microscopic structure, but also 
uh, the chemistry. It was a great surprise to me to realise um, that you can learn a great deal about the chemistry of the brain from uh, the brain after somebody has died. You'd think it might all completely subside and not be meaningful, but it isn't the case. A lot of the enzymes still remain, and you can learn a great deal about how the brain was functioning and what chemical reactions were possible there uh, by looking at after somebody's died. So in 1960, Hornerkowitz was able to show that there was a deficiency of dopamine, a chemical within the brain that's used as a transmitter uh, that nerve cells from that area of the midbrain, which is damaged in Parkinson's disease, here, um, used to transmit information to the next nerve cell in a chain. And when this deficiency was recognised, it was possible to develop a treatment for Parkinson's disease that substitutes for the deficient dopamine uh, by, by using L-DOPA as a, as a precursor of dopamine. So on the left, in this diagram, you can see how this circuit works during healthy life with a lot of nerve cells here projecting up to the basal ganglia in the base of the cerebral hemispheres and then in turn there are connections between that region and other parts of the basal ganglia and eventually back to the substantia nigra. That's this area here. But in Parkinson's disease that projection is lost and the main loss of chemical is dopamine. There are some other minor losses but it's the dopamine that's all important. And applying a similar sort of approach to trying to understand what the chemical changes are in Alzheimer's disease, um, there was work done in the 1970s that showed that there was shortage of um, a neurotransmitter, another of these chemicals that transmit from one cell to another, um, acetylcholine. And that uh, green arrow is uh, showing how there's a deficiency in the enzyme that's needed to form uh, acetylcholine. There are other more serious losses within the, um, within the cortex of noradrenaline and, and serotonin um, and a whole host of other things as well. So it's not as quite as simple as it is in Parkinson's disease and it hasn't been as easy to provide replacement therapy in Alzheimer's disease um, as it was in Parkinson's disease. Nevertheless, um, there is a treatment for Alzheimer's disease which works in some people quite well, um, usually for only a limited time, but, but it works by ensuring that the, acetyl, the limited acetylcholine that is produced has longer to work than it normally does by inhibiting the enzyme that no normally destroys it. So these chemical discoveries that have aided treatment of Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease were dependent on research made on human brains after the death of people who suffered from these diseases. And it's very likely that we'll find other treatments. Um, these may be just the first, uh, but having said that, it takes years for this sort of discovery to translate into an effective treatment. So Hornikowitz was finding out about the dopamine deficiency in Parkinson's disease in 1960, but it was only in the mid-1970s that L-DOPA became <coughs> widely applied as a treatment for Parkinson's disease. And likewise, it was David Bowen in London and 
Elaine Perry in Newcastle, who did a lot of the work uh, demonstrating the shortage of acetylcholine in the cortex in the 1970s. Um, it was only in the 1990s that Aricept, the um, treatment that I've just mentioned, um, was actually taken up and used widely. So it takes a long time for these discoveries to lead to treatments. Meanwhile, in the 20th century, I want to draw your attention to these two um, slides, these images, which are showing us that the demography has changed dramatically during the 20th century. And the thing to concentrate in the left hand <coughs> on in the left hand panel is the green part of the pie, which is showing you the proportion of people dying in 1919 who were aged 65 years and over when they died. And on the right, the pie is showing you that 82 or 85 percent of people dying at the end of the 20, towards the end of the 20th century were 65 years and over. So if you take that into account and you look at the right-hand panel, which shows you how the prevalence of dementia increases with age, it's only from about the age of 70 or 75 that um, dementia becomes really um, obvious in the population. And then it rises exponentially. So we're living on into an age when we are at risk of developing dementia. And it's estimated that there are 500 new cases of Alzheimer's disease a day in the UK at present being diagnosed. So we do have an urgent need to understand this disease and others better. So coming back to the timeline, I'm now going to talk a little bit more about the 20th century, the second half of the 20th century. Brain archives, there are a few brain archives that started to be formed quite early in the 20th century. More became established about the middle of the, of the century. Um, in Oxford, we started collecting brains from about 1938. That was when we first had a neuropathologist. Um, but we had a huge fire in 1971 that destroyed a lot of our material. So most of our cases now have derived from 1971 onwards. Um, but the other thing that happened that I want to say a word about now is about the middle of the 20th century um, and the explosion in understanding of genetics that has followed from the discovery of the structure of DNA by Watson and Crick in 1953. There had been genetic studies before that, of course. There was Mendel and his peas and so on. But this was really a step change in our understanding. And what they showed was that DNA uh, consists of um, two strands of what are labelled here the sugar phosphate backbones, winding around each other and held together through the presence of these four related but not identical bases. Uh, with the names adenine, thymine, guanosine, and cytosine. And the, the real um, breakthrough that came with Watson and Crick was the realisation that triplets of these base pairs code for the production of an amino acid that has to be tagged on to a developing protein chain in the cell's cytoplasm. And in that way, 
the proteins that are produced by a cell are determined by the code within the nucleus um, in the chromosomes. And this happens through the formation of a related but not identical molecule to the DNA, which uses the DNA as a template to um, carry the information about these triplets into the cytoplasm where you have the um, factories for producing proteins in cells. Uh, so it determines the order in which amino acids are added to protein chains. It then uh, gets uh, destroyed so it doesn't keep on producing the same protein. And um, in the nucleus there are uh, mechanisms which actually are still being uncovered at the present time mechanisms for controlling the turning on and off of genes to make them active or keep them quiet and one of the most ubiquitous of these methods is the addition of a methyl group group to these chain these um, these bases and that silences that particular gene now there are lots of other ways to silence genes but that is one of the commonest and one of the earliest discovered so if you don't have methyl groups on your, on your um, bases, you, you have an active gene. If you have the methyl groups attached, that gene is silent. And this is the method by which the brain, the, the body develops its different types of organs. So a liver cell has got one set of genes that are active and lots of others that are inactive. A brain cell has another different pattern, some of them overlapping with liver, but a lot of them not overlapping with liver, um, which turns it into a nerve cell. So it's a colossally complicated system that enables the body to be formed and then maintained uh, with all the differentiation needed for the separate functions of different organs. And the brain itself has a tremendous variation in the genes that are turned on and off in different places and different cells within different places. And so to study this, we need to be able to sample both healthy brains, because there's a lot we don't understand about genetic expression in normal brains, um, and in disease. And these, this outlines the, the different main lobes of the brain and um, the fact that there may be differences in expression of genes from one lobe to another because each lobe has slightly different functions from the others. And this is, a, this is a diagram that gives some sort of inkling into the way in which gene expression, these are changes in gene expression, you can, and the lengths of these bars indicates how much change there is. And you can see that in the fetus, there's a colossally um, active change in the way in which genes are expressed. As the brain develops, it's got to form itself. Um, less in the infant compared to fetus, but infants still very busy compared with adult life, which is over here on the right. In children, it's pretty busy, not as busy as in the, the scales here are different between this and this. Not as busy as in the infant, but still very busy. But then when you get into early adult life, things quieten down. All that needs to happen is that structure and function need to be maintained. But you can see that as you get into your 60s and 70s, there's more change again, because the brain is having to repair itself. It's getting damaged by having 
functioned for such a long time and so additional genes need to be switched on to try to repair the damage. Just to give you an idea of how this sort of approach might be informative in disease, here's an example of a study that was done quite recently on subjects with autism and controls. The controls um, are indicated above and the point of this study was to compare the way in which genes are expressed in the temporal lobes, which is indicated by the um, royal blue circle there, and the frontal lobes, which are indicated by the paler um, blue. And on the right, you can see from the length of those black bars, the, different, the differential differences between the frontal and the temporal lobes in the expression of a whole range of different genes which are listed on the left of that part of the slide. And you can see there's a good deal of difference. Um, but if you look at the red bars, which are the subjects who had autism when they were alive, you can see that there's <coughs> much less variation in expression of genes between the frontal and the, and the temporal lobes, which suggests that in autism, there's less differentiation between these two lobes, um, which probably goes some way to explaining why they have difficulties, for example, in social communication. Now, the other thing that um, the understanding of gene mutations and brain diseases has shown is that <coughs> you can um, develop very interesting models of human diseases in mice. So there's, there are three different genes where mutations in humans can give rise to um, inherited Alzheimer's disease, usually starting relatively early in life. And um, if you take one of those genes that's mutated in humans, you can actually transfect it into the genome of mice. And then those mice will become susceptible to developing that disease. And these sections show brain, um, the brain at different levels within a mouse, which has got the plaques, which I showed you earlier in human tissue, here expressed in mice. And then you can play around, for example, with the um, environment in which the mice live to see whether you can make this pathology develop more slowly, or ideally not develop at all, um, there may be treatments which, once this sort of pathology has developed, you can then halt with some treatment. Um, that's the hope, and that was the hope when these sorts of studies started um, quite a while ago. Um, but much commoner than um, having a gene that actually determines you're going to get Alzheimer's disease, or or Parkinson's disease or whatever, um, it are genes that make you susceptible, but don't mean inevitably that you're going to have that disease. They're called susceptibility genes, and um, we think that the way in which they can be uh, controlled by environmental factors may be what determines whether somebody with a susceptibility gene gets the disease or not. So, factors in the environment come, start to become much more important. And in some ways, that's valuable because we can alter environments if we know what's good and what's bad for our brains um, in a way that we can't alter our genes. Um, and 
the way in which the environment is thought to be able to influence the outcome from having susceptibility genes is by what's called epigenetic modification, which is the same process, as I've told you, determines how one type of cell in a liver develops in a different way from one in the brain. So by methylation and other forms of control of gene expression, uh, the environment can make a difference to um, what's going on. And there's an example I thought I'd just give you very briefly from uh, a recent study related to Alzheimer's disease where a mouse that was genetically programmed to develop Alzheimer's disease um, was um, studied to see whether um, the factors that controlled whether or not they developed um, disease was um, modifiable. And uh, in particular, this was a study that was interested in potential involvement of chronic stress, making you more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease. And uh, the, the thinking behind this experiment was that stress provokes the pr production of hormones, cortisol, which is produced by the adrenal gland, which is produced to help the body meet fight or flight responses of the sort that happen in stress. And cortisol is um, a glucocorticoid which has receptors in the brain, so that there are brain cells that can respond to this hormone. And this study showed that activation of these receptors was capable of inhibiting the performance of genes that were needed to form memories in mice. And they also showed that in these mice, they could actually reverse this. It was on its own, it seemed to be irreversible. Once the inhibition had happened, that was that for that mouse. But they had a, a, a mechanism for actually reversing that. And the mouse then be able, became able to make memories again. So this sort of approach, if we understood it better, might be something that we could apply in humans if, they start, if we start to develop memory problems. There might be some treatment like that that could halt the process and, and make life more tolerable. So I've tried to show you uh, with a combination of studies of mice and human brain tissue, we can advance understanding of brain diseases. Just taking as individual examples, there are hundreds more. Um, of autism and Alzheimer's disease. So we're hoping that this will lead to better treatments, but even better prevention. You have to study human brain because the mice are not perfect. They don't, they're not really the same as, as humans. And um, they actually sometimes downright mislead us in the results of these experiments. And these experiments in mice have been going on now for 25 or so years and I think to start with we had the hope that they would provide the answers that we needed but now we're coming to realize more and more that we actually have to study the human brain and how it is affected in disease so I want now to just tell you end my talk by just telling you a little bit about brain donation and the key to it all of it is consent um, you never have um, a, a brain entering a research program without the consent of the donor or if the donor is not capable of providing consent because for example they might be too demented they're next of kin so we have consent for we, we operate under a license 
issued by the Human Tissue Authority, which is a body that was set up relatively recently, uh, following the Human Tissue Act being passed in Parliament in 2006, um, to safeguard the importance of this consent. Um, so we have a consent form that donors can fill in if they're interested in donating their brain uh, for research while they're alive and capable. We strongly encourage them to discuss the decision that they've made with their next of kin because it's a lot easier to deal with the donation process if the next of kin know about it and are equally signed up to it. There's also a consent form that can be filled in by next of kin if somebody isn't capable um, and that can be done after the death of somebody whose brain might be donated. As long as the next of kin was not aware that the person would have not wanted this to happen. And there's information that comes with this consent form about what's involved. A full PM is not necessary. Um, and once somebody has died who wants to donate their brain, um, it's really important to try to get the brain tissue um, into the optimal sort of uh, pres preserving state within as short a time as possible. It's not quite as critical as it is for organ transplant, but it's, if you can get brain tissue within six hours of a death, there's a lot more you can do with that tissue than if you get it three, four, five days later. But nothing can happen until a death certificate's formed, and that's one of the things that we find difficult in this country, because often there's a big delay before we get a death certificate signed. Once that's happened, the brain, the, the body is removed, removed by um, funeral directors to a mortuary, a hospital mortuary. The brain is removed. Um, the brain comes to the department that holds the brain bank, um, and the information is put into the database. The dissection is carried out. We usually divide the brain in half, freeze, deep freeze at minus 80 degrees, some samples from one side, and we fix in fixative to preserve the structure, um, the other half. And most of these conditions affect both sides of the brain, so you can learn from both types of tissue. Uh, you need to reach a diagnosis, you need confirmation of the clinical diagnosis because sometimes it's actually incorrect and we don't want to be giving out tissue that isn't what it, it's supposed to be to researchers. And throughout this process, confidentiality is maintained. The researchers never get to see the, the personal details of the donor. And we give feedback to donors. We send a letter of thanks to next of kin. Um, the next of kin can say whether or not they want feedback about the, the diagnosis. Um, we offer regular newsletters that they can sign up to receive if they want to. And also we organise meetings uh, when they can hear about the research that's been done with the tissue. And that, those are very productive meetings where the researchers are really interested in meeting the families that have donated the tissue and vice versa. Dispensing tissue for research. Um, a researcher who wants human brain tissue to study needs to have an ethically approved project. They make an application. It's considered by a management committee. And if it's approved, the tissue's made available, provided we've got what they're asking for. And um, it's all anonymized. Um, there's no cost for the tissue, but we do make a modest cost to cover the technical work and also the shipping costs involved. And we make tissue available to groups all over the world.
How do we monitor the success of a brain bank? Well, we want the causes and prevention of disease to be uncovered. That's, our, that's really what we're after. But this happens through the publication of peer-reviewed um, papers in journals. But also, we want to increase public awareness of the need for research, this sort of research, talking to people like you, um, effective training of staff, and trying to encourage scientists to use human brain tissue for their research. Some of them get so hooked up on looking at mouse brains that they can control so perfectly that they think they don't want to enter into the more uncertain world of human tissue research. But I think we have to try to persuade them to do that. We promote collaboration between users, so that if somebody's looking at the genetics um, of a condition and another person's looking at the microscopy, it's good for them to know what they're each doing in order to be able to perhaps um, add to the value of their studies. And we also like to promote this three-way communication between the brain bank staff, the users and the donors. The donors are critical. We can't do any of this work without um, donors. And a lot of people don't know that it's valuable to give their brain for research, particularly people whose brains are normal. Uh, we have to have normal brains as well as diseased brains if we're going to be able to make sense of what's gone wrong um, in disease. So uh, our Thomas Willis Bank actually has material from a lot of conditions. Dementia particularly indicated that BDR, Brains for Dementia Research, at the top there, which is a project funded by two uh, Alzheimer charities. Um, that's supported by dendron clinics, memory clinics, which the NHS has set up to enable people with memory problems to come and potentially participate in trials for treatment, um, but also they're offered this opportunity to to um, contribute to research after their death and, it, and, and there are a lot of people who are interested in doing that once they know that there's a need for this. And the families are, are come back again and again and tell us what a comfort they get from having known that their family member with a particular disease has been able to contribute to research in this sort of way. We've also got some baby brains and, and Paediatric cases, I have a colleague who's interested in paediatrics. The autism, the UK Autism Brain Bank is, has been relatively recently set up in Oxford. Uh, we have a control brain where we're trying to, uh, bank where we're trying to get more control cases, um, which as I say is quite difficult because people don't know it can be helpful. So we have a very helpful bereavement team at the John Radcliffe Hospital who look through notes to see whether somebody's got any problems with their psychiatric or neurological history. If they haven't, if they've died of something completely different, like a heart attack or sometimes cancer, um, they make the relatives aware that this could be a valuable thing to do. And I, I remember one very striking message that a husband had written about um, a donation from his wife. He'd been approached by our bereavement team. And he'd, and, the, and he'd agreed to the donation of her brain for research. And he'd written on the bottom of the consent form, this is exactly what my wife would have liked to happen. Uh, so we get messages like that all the time. It's, it's, some people don't like to think about death and what happens to their brain after death, but actually a lot of people do find it possible to help. So I'd like to thank you for your attention, and if you have any questions, I'd be very pleased to try to answer them. And I just wonder about...